interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. The Institute of Biblical Studies, uh, this is the 15th annual institute. It was started in 1992 with the purpose of deepening our knowledge of God and of his word. Uh, since that time, the series has included such distinguished scholars as Walter Kaiser, Roger Nicole, and D.A. Carson. Our guest is Dr. William Edgar. He is a professor of apologetics at Westminster Theological Seminary, and he's also a senior fellow of the Trinity Forum, which is an organization started uh, by Oz Guinness. He is a professional jazz pianist and holds degrees from Harvard, Westminster, and the University of Geneva. He is an ordained minister, a frequent conference speaker, and the author of several books, one of them being The Face of Truth. And I will have uh, a few of these books at the book table available for purchase tomorrow. Um, Bill, why don't you come on up and I'll pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, how we thank you for the very gift of life. You have given us our, our being and our reason and our faculties. And we thank you especially, Lord, for the gift of your Son, who you sent into the world to redeem us. We thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit, and we ask your blessing on our time together here this evening. In Jesus' name. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here. Believe it or not, the last time I was at Cornell in Ithaca was in the early 60s. Um, I was playing soccer for Harvard, and uh, we took this really long bus trip from Boston, and... Um, Probably because it was such a long uh, bus trip, we lost. <laughs> At least that's what the history books say. You know, maybe some revisionism there. Uh, three days before the storming of the Bastille, 1789, in uh, Paris, a very colorful man, Camille Desmoulins, coiffed in a revolutionary beret, stood up on a table in a cafe in one of the central meeting places of Paris called the Palais Royal, and he shouted, Two arms, citizens, two arms. A bunch of them took arms and went down and uh, made demonstrations and got into trouble in the city. The immediate cause of their taking up arms was the, the repressive government had closed down a local theater which was sponsoring a play about revolutionary values. And not to be um, upstaged, they decided the real drama would be on the streets of Paris. Three days later, events heated up. A couple of them were killed by stray bullets and um, a revolutionary force went and stormed the old prison called the Bastille, where um, not very many prisoners were there, but it was more of a symbolic gesture. They liberated them, and um, 
that unleashed what we now know as the French Revolution. The French Revolution was remarkable for many different reasons. As in the case of most revolutions, although some of the immediate causes leading up to it had to do with poverty, oppression, poor crops, a government that was in uh, collusion with a church that was not considered to be um, very up-to-date. Nevertheless, the underlying motive of the revolution was far deeper and more philosophical and darker in nature. It was summed up in the slogan, Sans Dieu ni loi, without God nor law. Much of the revolutionary philosophy was an attempt to take the human race from one chapter to another chapter, from the chapter of subjugation to a chapter of equality, fraternity, and of liberty. And to do that had to require literally the putting to death of the old regime. One of the extraordinary things about the French Revolution is while it was on the surface anti-religious, it was in fact a deeply religious drama. Things like the religious services in Notre Dame Cathedral were not, were not abolished, but were substituted for with revolutionary religious ceremonies. The master altar was knocked down and in its place a, a massive pile of dirt was put with a tree growing on top, symbolizing uh, the tree of new life. And instead of the processional with the traditional um, statue of Mary and um, singing of, of hymns and so forth, they took a local prostitute, dressed her in white, put her on a platform and marched her in singing the secular hymns of Gosek, who praised the God of reason. There was substitution for religion all the way along. Um, instead of the Bible, the newspaper was considered to be the, the place of revelation. But most ominously and most significantly, in the place of the sacrificial atonement of Christ, the sacrificial atonement of the guillotine, in what is now called the Place de la Concorde, which was then the revolutionary place, Place de la Révolution, was um, erected. Now, as you know, if you've read books about this or you've seen films about it, the drama of going to the guillotine was significant in itself. This instrument of so-called humane death, which had been invented by, of all things, a piano tuner, uh, was brought to perfection and approved by the French government. And um, beginning particularly with the so-called reign of terror, it was used over and over and over again to purge the past. The nobility, no one was spared. Even the king was eventually uh, killed off with this blade. Now, I'm telling you this because we're raising the question tonight. Can you be good without God. And much of the answer today, maybe the nearly unanimous voice of today, is certainly you can be good without God. Not only can you, but you must. And many, in many ways in our universities, uh, we have tried to prove this 
by substituting the old triad of the good, the true, and the beautiful for a new triad of service and character, research and objective knowledge, culture and art. Now, nothing wrong with this except that this takes us from the lofty realm of what was agreed to be three classical virtues into the more secular realm of trying to work these out in a context that does not have a unifying truth to it as its basis. Now, the French Revolution is an example of a massive attempt to bring good into society, but without God. And what was discovered and what was discovered in all revolutions, the 1917 and many of the contemporary ones, is that you still need some mechanism of atonement in order to move from the past to the present. And what Christians would say is that the reason you need that is because our problem is a far deeper one, a far more serious one than simply oppression, than simply unfairness, than simply collusion of church and state. Although those are part of the problem, they are not the, the, the root of the problem. The problem is so deep that only a special kind of atonement is going to remedy the situation. The need for goodness is so high and so great that only a remarkable kind of goodness will do. One of the great novelists of the 19th century saw this and in a way was prophetic of all that would happen in the 20th and now the 21st century. I'm referring, of course, to Fyodor Dostoevsky. And in his most famous novel, The Brothers Karamazov, Ivan, who is the philosopher, makes the famous quip, if there is no immortality, then everything is permitted. Let me pause just for a moment on this amazing novel. It's the story of patricide, the killing or the murder of a father. Each of his sons had reasons to kill this evil man. Zosima Karamazov was a despicable character. He abused other people. He produced a child through the village madwoman. He made considerable fortune by ravishing his competitors. And although the actual murderer was Smerdyakov, the motive was shared. And Ivan was the one who justified it philosophically. And here's his argument. Though not a moral relativist, he strongly held that God was unjust. Because there's widespread cruelty and injustice, it is God who must be sentenced, he argued. In the famous Grand Inquisitor chapter, which has become a classic of literature, he argues that two fathers ought to die, Father Karamazov and God himself. They both had created life with unfairness. Both were authors of suffering. If innocent people must suffer, Ivan tells his brother Alyosha, then I cannot accept God's world. And he relates the awful story of the general who sends his dogs to tear up a little peasant child. 
Even the righteous Alyosha agrees that such a man ought to be shot. The central problem in this novel, then, is, is God able to vindicate justice? Is God good? Is he able to bring his goodness here on earth? You remember, if you know the story, this amazing chapter, the Grand Inquisitor, has, has it that in the Spanish Inquisition, in a little town in Spain, um, Jesus Christ comes back. But the local cardinal arrests him, saying, in effect, we've got a good thing going here. We're using raw power. Don't ruin it with your preaching of freedom. What does Ivan's Christ do? Well, he forgives the cardinal with a kiss. This God and his Christ, though, are powerless to prevent the cruelties of the Inquisition. In fact, the Grand Inquisitor believes the church must correct God's approach, which is ineffective because it offers love to bad people and good people alike. And at last, the chapter tells us the church can conquer and get rid of freedom in order to make people happy. Instead of freedom, which people can't support, there will be miracle, mystery, and authority. And just as significant, there will be bread. Christ made the biggest mistake of his life by refusing to turn the stones into bread. But the Christ of this account um, is going to be corrected. There will be bread for the people. Now, of course, this is not Dostoevsky's view, though one can sense how much he struggled with this problem. Indeed, for Dostoevsky, the bread is all of material prosperity made possible by technology, industry, and symbolized again and again by the Tower of Babel. If God is good, why can he not correct the injustices of the world? Smerdyakov, the ugly, illegitimate perpetrator, is really the true face of Ivan, the philosopher, who is cultured and civilized on the surface. But one discovers his true character throughout. The Russian liberals, the intellectuals who want to do away with the Tsar and with all paternal authority, even gods, are no less cruel in their true face as Dostoevsky would see it. As Thomas G. West puts it, the crude and smirking Smerdyakov, consumed by hate, is the genuine expression of the liberal intelligentsia's revolt against the authority of the biological father, the father Tsar, the fathers of the church and God the Father. Now, Dostoevsky did believe in God's justice. He was vehemently against patricide. He did think God was both good and powerful, though he struggled to see how it worked. But he could not accept the liberal dream. He believed there must be a real father. Life made no sense without him. In his novel, The Devils, we see what happens to a small town when the liberals take over. Though leftist, they are cruel and willing to do anything at all to achieve their goals. They preach equality, but are capable of mass murder. They are, in fact, tyrants. Now, Dostoevsky saw very clearly what would happen in the ensuing decades and in the next century. He saw it more clearly than most. We don't need to find tyrants if we're going to get rid of God, he predicted. They're readily available in the race in the human race. 
If we give up on God, then anything can happen. After the death of God, some might still talk of equality, enlightenment values, but the reality would be to unleash the evil of the human heart. Now, to this dark prophecy, we have to say, looking back at events in the 20th and in the 20th century, who was right? Him or the 19th century optimists? Who was closer to the truth? Dostoevsky or people like Tocqueville, who had hoped that we would tame all of our evil passions in a kind of a happy society? Of course, the answer is rhetorical, it's to the rhetorical question is, is, is Dostoevsky. He had the insight that if we don't start with a sufficiently powerful and good, transcendent beginning point, we will end with anything. We will end with a human substitute. And because he understood that the world was not good, that we were in a fallen world, he knew that atonement would happen. He happened to believe that Christ was the atonement. But when a society turns from that Christ, it invents its own. This lesson was learned in a personal way by the great poet W.H. Auden. And it's an amazing story because it's really the story of his return to the church. I had the privilege of, of meeting him at our literary society when I was at Harvard. Remarkable man, very eloquent, one of the major poets and dramatists of the 20th century. Um, he was born in York. He was edu educated at Oxford. But his early philosophy was a kind of left-leaning humanism, partly Freudian, partly Marxist. He held to the idea that mankind is fundamentally good. But that changed abruptly shortly after he immigrated to New York in 1939. He came to live in the Yorkville section of Manhattan, which in those days, much more than today, was an entirely German, Germanic uh, culture. You sent your kids to German schools and you bought your food in um, delis and so forth. And um, so he went to the movies one night with a friend. And the film that he watched was called Sieg im Poland, War in Poland. And it recounted Hitler's invasion, his cruel invasion of Poland. But to Auden's shock and amazement, when the Polish faces appeared on the screen, he heard people in the German audience scream, kill them, kill the Poles. As Auden later put it, I wondered then why I reacted as I did against this denial of every humanistic value. The answer brought me back to the church. This happened for two reasons. Obviously, first, his humanism was completely shattered. Human nature, even though from a different culture group, it's the same in that room, in the cinema. Human nature capable of such outbursts could not be good. Certainly not purely good, but must be evil. But second, he began to look for a reason behind his own revulsion and for his hatred of what these Nazis stood for. He said there had to be some reason why Hitler was utterly wrong. And in his search, he badgered his friends because he found that they were bankrupt in their philosophies. 
He told one friend, the English intellectuals who now cry to heaven against the evil incarnated in Hitler have no heaven to cry to. They have nothing to offer and their prospects echo in empty space. And so he reconsidered the Christian God and he came back to the God of his youth and he wrote this line, either we serve the unconditional or some Hitlerian monster will supply an iron convention to do evil by. Can you be good without God? No. But there's more. It's not enough simply to assert that there's an answer, that there's a reason to call things good and evil. But we've got to know whether goodness has any power to it. We've got to know whether this atonement is real or whether we're just fated to invent our own. Let me give you three anecdotes which have three answers to the question about what does goodness look like. The first illustrates the principle that morality is not enough. It's from the wonderful book of Augustine's Confessions. If you're not familiar with this, it's one of the great spiritual masterpieces of all times. Augustine recounts in it the story of his own conversion and his walk with God. But it's not just a a biography or an autobiography. It's really a series of meditations and prayers. He kind of lets you in on his life and you feel like you're, you're sharing this man's journey. And in this story, in this book, Um, you encounter his best friend, whose name is Olypius. I trust most of us in this room have had or do have a best friend with which they share so much. And uh, although a bit older than he, uh, Augustine loved this man dearly. Uh, Before they were both Christians, he was professor and Olypius was student. But Olypius had a singular weakness. He had an addiction. He'd lost his heart and his head to the games in the amphitheater. Now, this may be difficult for us to imagine, but of course, in those days, um, at the Roman Empire, uh, the, the great form of entertainment, particularly in the central cities like Rome or Nice or wherever, was to see people chewed up by animals. And usually there was some sort of pretended justification to it. These were criminals or or whatever they might be. There were professional gladiators. But you went to these horrible, violent, bloodthirsty games basically for entertainment. And it was addictive. Now, the first stage of Olypius' release from this was in a lesson that Augustine was teaching and he he was used without even knowing it to prevent this young man from continuing to waste his talents in this thoughtless, impetuous enthusiasm for futile pastimes. So one day, Olypius shows up for his lesson and Augustine, without thinking about it, takes an illustration from the arena and he says, this is ridiculous. Mature people don't do this and so forth. And his words were used to cure Olypius, at least temporarily, out of his habit. For after he had heard my words, Olypius hastened to drag himself out of the deep pitfall into which, 
dazzled by the allure of pleasure, he had plunged of his own accord. By a great effort of self-control, he shook himself free of all the dirt of the arena and never went near it again. Well, almost never. This was not sufficient. Like Augustine, he began to trust in self-control. He began to trust on the lofty but inadequate system of ethics known as Manichaeism. He admired the Manichaeans, as Augustine writes, for their ostensible continence, which he thought quite genuine. Though, of course, he says, it was merely a nonsensical and deceitful method of trapping precious souls which had not learnt to feel the depth of real virtue. So the two men go to Rome. And here, Olypius has a terrible downfall. He got an extraordinary craving for gladiatorial shows. And though he tried to resist, his friends, isn't that often the way, enticed him. At one point he says, You may drag me there bodily, but it'll be just as if I weren't present. I'll prove myself stronger than you or the games. So, he decided he'd go to the games and resist by closing his eyes. As Augustine said, though, if he'd only close his ears as well. Uh, So he got right back into the blood and the violence of the games. And listen to this. The following coming from the Confessions could be a textbook account written today of addiction. For an incident in the fight drew a great roar from the crowd, and this thrilled him so deeply that he could not contain his curiosity. Whatever caused the uproar, he was confident that if he saw it, he would find it repulsive and remain master of himself. So he opened his eyes, and his soul was stabbed with a wound more deadly than any which the gladiator, whom he was so anxious to see, had received in his body. He fell and fell more pitifully than the man whose fall had drawn that roar of excitement from the crowd. The din had pierced his ears and forced him to open his eyes, laying his soul open to receive the wound which struck it down. He reveled in the wickedness. He watched and cheered and grew hot with excitement. He became a leader of the games in in its cheering. Now, Augustine goes on to say the story doesn't end here. He comments that Olypius was being presumptuous, not courageous. And he says, The weakness of his soul was in relying upon itself instead of trusting in you, O Lord God. And then he says, Yet you, God, stretched out your almighty, ever-merciful hand and rescued him from his madness. You taught him to trust in you, not in himself. And this would be later. And later he became a great preacher and a bishop and he administered the sacraments and uh, became one of the great heroes of the faith. Why am I telling you this story? Because it's a great example of spiritual pride. It's a great example of when we think we're strong, the danger lurks. When we think we've got a wonderful ethical system that explains everything, we don't have the power to live it out. The system of ethics taught in ancient Greece was lofty, noble, admirable, but it couldn't give strength to faith the deep trials of life. It had high standards, but it lacked the power of goodness. Does that ring true for any of you? It certainly does for me. I know um, good intentions have beset me much of my life. 
And I feel that I can resist. I know I'm strong when I'm sitting in my armchair. But then out in the, in the trenches and out in the place of temptation, all of that fails because I've been trusting in the wrong thing. Morality is not enough. You need power. And God is there because of Christ's atonement to give an unusual and a real kind of power, not only to resist, but to do good. Now, the second anecdote is, is quite different. And this one is to show the point that imitation or example is not enough in order to find true goodness. My wife and I have had the privilege of being quite involved in going to mainland China, particularly with a group known as the Cultural Christians. And it's been our privilege to be in numbers of great universities in Beijing, um, in uh, Shanghai, in Jinan, in Anhui province and many other places where at their invitation, this is only a few decades after Mao, um, we've been asked to bring some kind of explanation of how Christianity relates to Europe for the good of Europe. Ironic that it's at a time when many Europeans are quite cynical about the role of Christianity in, in Europe. But the Chinese government, which sponsors the programs we went to, have, have asked many of us to come over and explain what Christianity did in the history of Europe. Now, what they want is to see how it could play out in China. So, my difficult burden was, on the one hand, to try to recognize where Christianity did have a tremendous impact on European history. And I tried to stress things like the uh, tradition of church and state separation based on an understanding of the Trinity, um, the rise of democracy uh, based on the biblical notion of debate rather than um, massive reaction uh, to massive oppression, um, some of the great traditions of charity and reform that came out of a Christian awareness um, all the way back uh, from the Roman Empire in places like the, the Galen um, pandemics where the church was willing to go out and rescue people with the plague who nobody else wanted to rescue uh, through the medieval Hôtel Dieu, the wonderful hospitals that were created out of, out of the sense of, of Christian charity, right up to the present where hu human rights, women's rights, um, racial equality and justice uh, were enacted for specifically Christian purposes. My difficult task was to balance this with a kind of warning that says, you know, these things did happen, but one, not only good came through um, the church in Europe, a lot of that also slouched towards corruption. You think of the blind eye that some of the church, churches turned on the Nazi Occupation. You, you think of the well-known abuses of the church, which uh, people will point out, such as the Crusades and so on. But my most difficult task was to say, you know, you don't need to imitate this. You need to discover Christianity and see how it will play itself out in a specifically Chinese context. It's the old saying, God has no grandchildren. You need to take this 
and apply it because it's true. And I love the quote from one of Os Guinness's books where he says, Christianity is not true because it works. Christianity works because it's true. And so we tried to bring that challenge to these wonderful, wide open top scholars of China whose leadership will change the way the country goes in the next generation. And the lesson we tried to bring was example. Imitation is not enough. It's got to be a true embrace based on an understanding of the reality of Christ's atonement. My final example is to show the point that words of protest, declarations of intent, are not enough. How many speeches are made from friend to friend that say something like, I'll always be there for you. And how often is that a disappointing promise? There is a tiny, very unknown village in the Plateau du Vivare in France known as Le Chambon sur Lignon. Except for the efforts of a few grateful chroniclers, the courageous role of its people during the darkest hours of the Second World War would not have been known. Indeed, ignoring them would have suited the inhabitants who didn't think of themselves as heroes and didn't want to be famous. Nevertheless, this village distinguished itself in contrast to so many other parts of France and Europe by um, doubling its size, going from 4,000 to 8,000, um, the 4,000 being Jewish refugees, half of whom were children. They simply took them in and became some of the most extraordinary people on the face of the earth. These rescued people, many of them children, uh, from the dreadful fate of the Nazi medical experiments and horrors of the Holocaust, uh, were saved thanks to the extraordinary courage of the Chambonnet. Now, a Jew who grew up in a tough section of Chicago, Philip Halley, who eventually became a philosopher and a student of the Holocaust, was a skeptic and had long bouts with severe depression until he made a life-changing discovery. In 1974, way after the war, he came across the story of Le Chambon. It was almost at random. He was perusing a book about French resistance working and he saw an article with the name of the village which didn't appear on his own historical records which were nearly exhaustive, he thought. And he writes this. When I got to the bottom of the third page of the article, my cheeks started itching and I reached up to scratch them. I found that they were covered with tears. Not just a few tears. My cheeks were awash with them. What was there in this story about a tiny village standing on a high plateau in the mountains of central France that made me weep? It was joy that did it. Overwhelming joy, which can squeeze tears out of us as suddenly as misery can. Much of my joy came from sheer surprise. All of a sudden I was witnessing help that was not lethal or even wounding. I was seeing spontaneous love that had nothing to do with sheer brute power. And this man dedicated the rest of his life to studying this village. What happened here? Well, these were largely Huguenot Protestants who had a strong affinity for the Jews, having a common background, and who knew a lot about persecution themselves. But the strange and wonderful thing, as almost everybody has remarked about these people, is that they simply did it 
naturally. When Pierre Sauvage interviewed uh, the people who had saved him and enabled him to be born in that village, became a filmmaker later in life and went to do a documentary on them, he was so surprised when he asked questions like, what gave you the courage to do this? And they said, courage? Um, this doesn't take courage. It just takes loving God and loving your neighbor. Isn't that what you're supposed to do? Um, let's go on to something more interesting. It was so matter of fact uh, and that, that um, you know, you, you would have, if you don't, if you go too fast, you'd miss the, the genius of this, the, the wonder of it. Um, it was it had become natural to them because they were bred on generosity. They were a poor people, a farming people, um, but they were simply bred on the principles of, of God's love. And um, when they saw a neighbor in need, that's what they did. In the interview with Bill Moyers at the uh, end of the first showing of Pierre Sauvage's famous film on the subject, Weapons of the Spirit, um, Moyers asks Pierre Sauvage, with this experience, what have you learned? And he, one of the things he says, I think I've learned a little bit more about what kinds of people I would go to if I were in trouble. What kind of people do you go to when you're in trouble? Is it the people who protest, I'll always be there for you? Or is it the people who don't protest a thing and just quietly are always there for you? Who are the people you go to when you have a need? Is it the person who is eloquent in saying how much we need to help people in need? Or is it the people who won't even ask you if you have a need, they just know it and they'll come and, and love you anyway? That's the lesson of this wonderful um, group in, in Le Chambon and many, many other people around the world who have given spontaneous generosity. Words of protest are not enough. Morality without power will not give you goodness. Imitation without making it your own because it's real will not give you goodness. Words of protest about I'll always be there for you are not exhibits of goodness. Goodness has to be exhibited in its source. What is the source of true goodness? Of course, it is the love of God. God is not only the all-wise and the almighty. He's also the all-good, the alone good, says Hermann Bavink. This goodness of God spreads itself out over the whole world. It varies according to the objects on which it is directed, assuming, as it were, various forms. Sometimes it's called long-suffering. Sometimes it's called grace. Sometimes it's called love. When God, out of grace towards his creatures, shares himself with them. You see, the goodness of God is unlike any other kind of goodness. It's proven not in declarations of doctrine and theology, though those are important. It's proven in how far he was willing to go in order to make us benefit from his goodness. It's proven in the fact that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit conspired in goodness. Jesus went to become a human being, to make himself victim of human society and human evil in order to atone for the sins of the whole world. There is no other kind of love so deep. There is no greater love than this. 
God is love because God's love brings his goodness and shows his goodness to us in the sacrifice of sacrifices. When Christ was hanging on that cross in an agonizing death whose um, equal we will never find, what was happening is not just his physical body being torn apart. Not only was he being shamed by this cruel form of exposure, but because he was willing to take the guilt of the human race on himself, he was experiencing the unimaginable, the separation of son from father. Now, we can say those words, but what does it mean that the structure of reality before the worlds were made, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, in that eternal dance of love and communication and fellowship, was wrenched apart on a dark day in the first century. We only know a small part of this because we can't imagine what it is that the Son of all eternity cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And meant it. This is the second member of the Trinity who knows all things, asking why in his humanity. This is love. That God would go to such an extent to make his goodness available to us who don't deserve it. Yes, we have a lot of questions. Yes, we wonder, as Dostoevsky wondered, at the death of a child, at the cruelty of oppressors. We wonder at natural um, disasters. We wonder at so many things. But when we do, we ought to wonder even more at the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Augustine, at the beginning of those confessions, which we talked about, makes a famous statement, which has come down wonderfully in the history of our human race, that we are restless. We are literally unquiet, it says in the Latin, until we find our rest in thee. And that's true. We will be restless to the point of perpetrating evil on one another and inventing false atonements unless our restlessness can be corrected and find the one place where we can be quiet because the atonement is accomplished. All is finished. It is done. But Augustine could have said one more thing, which I'm sure he believed, which is that God loves us so much that he is, as it were, restless until he can find rest for his love in you and in me. And he will not relent to pursue you and me until his love can rest in us. We imagine a God who is far away, who doesn't care, who allows evil to go on unchecked. But when we look at Christ, we see a very different kind of God. A God who will stop at nothing, who is relentless, not reluctant in his love. And this God does it 
because he is love and he has much love to give. Why don't you think of coming, if you don't know him already, into the bosom of this God who will give you rest and then will give you work to do for him in reversing the oppressions and in bringing comfort to those who are anxious and in bringing relief to the poor as a follower of Christ rather than as a fighter of Christ. Can you be good without God? No. And you don't want to either. Thank you.